Gentlemen, and I know that there are many of you who see people walking around with these masks and you get really, really angry. You feel like yelling at them, screaming at them, but you know that that's not going to wake them up. Okay? It's not going to wake them up being yelled and screamed at. And uh, that's why I love Billy, because he's the man of the calm. And uh, I'm the fruity one. Balance it out. We organized this uh, literally at the last second. Two protest lockdown and all of these brave people are, are out here against the orders of the, uh, the government 15 minutes early for the protest already. Please protect me! Please protect me from them! Please protect me! I do not understand! I do not understand! Please! Don't let them take me! Okay, I'm coming. I will consent. I will follow your orders. I will follow your orders. I will follow your orders. I will not resist. I will not resist. I will not resist. Hi guys, welcome to Glitch in the Code here on Iconic.com and BitChute and you're still going to be listening to this on Apple Podcasts and a few others. Spotify got rid of us the other day because we were being um, naughty and telling you some things they don't want us to hear. So we're gradually getting um, chucked off left, right and centre, but you'll be able to always watch us on Iconic.com. I'm here with my good friend Vinny Eastwood. Guys, you'll know Vinny from, um, well, you'll just you'll know him from his own show, the Vinny Eastwood Show. But Vinny's been through a hell of a time his last couple of months, and I wanted to get him on the show as soon as he was able to and and um, capable of doing it to talk about the horrific incident that you guys have probably seen. And what I'll do is I'll take the video. I found the video again tonight. I watched it a few times. It is horrific to watch. It is hard to watch. And I will put it at the start of this before we, we go in on the iconic platform so you'll see what we're talking about. Um, Vinny, um, Thanks for giving me your time, mate. How are you doing? Because that was, a, yeah, that was hard to watch and uh, heartbreaking to watch. Scary, all sorts of feelings, and it, is, it makes you angry, scared. I it just, you don't know what to say. The words are, baffle me. It's so different over here to where you are. So how are you? Well, I'm going through the worst trauma I've ever been through in my life. But other than that, I'm borderline and I'm fabulous. <laughs> okay, so other than that, Talk about the trauma, because I know when we spoke, I met you when I was in New Zealand a few years ago when we were shooting a series there with Christiana, um, and we had, we had a lovely time. And um, I know you suffer from panic attacks. I think we spoke about it at that time. This situation kicked off the panic attacks. Um, tell me how it felt. Well, not how it felt. What happened and how did that come about? You were at an Auckland um, lockdown rally. You were with Billy, T, Billy um, TK, and then the mob came in. Was that something you were you were aware that could possibly happen? Was it something? That you, was it a complete surprise? Oh no, no, no! I I knew that there was a, a very strong possibility uh, that both me and Billy were going to get arrested that day. And uh, as we were going on our way uh, to the protest, uh, we I, I told Billy, "Look, there's an old saying: How do you expose a fascist by making them act like it?" And what happened there, uh, although I really didn't want to get arrested and I had a baby to go home to and that kind of thing, I falsely assumed that I had uh, rights. Like, for example, I falsely assumed that the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act 1990, which guarantees freedom of expression and peaceful demonstration in uh, Section 14, was still in effect. I was wrong. 
I assumed that when the police told me I had the right to remain silent, that I had the right to remain silent when they asked me for the passwords to my phone. I was wrong. And, uh, you know, knowing all, all of these things, uh, now I may have uh, acted differently at the time. I thought that when you uh, were caught violating COVID-19 lockdown rules, you would get some kind of fine. I was wrong. You can get up to six months in prison. So at the moment, I'm facing two charges of up to six months in prison, and I am charging and I'm facing three months in prison uh, for refusing to give the password to my phone because I falsely believed I had the right to peaceful demonstration and the right to remain silent while in custody. It's hard to know what to say to that. I mean, how did it get to that point where you guys are? Because it's different, completely different over here. How did it get to that point so quickly over there? Jacinda. Okay. You put a smiling face on tyranny. And people will accept it when that smiling face tells them it's for your safety. It's because... We're being kind. Do they genuinely believe it, the people we majority of people? They, really they believe it so strongly that I was just interviewed by a talk radio host uh, the other night who said that she didn't believe I should be allowed to do what I'm doing. I asked her, has she ever seen a show that I've done in the last 13 years? And she said, I would never watch an episode of your show, even if you paid me. Did she realise talk radio and who it's funded by, by any chance? New Zealand media have been given publicly upwards of $100 million directly by the government as a uh, bail-in of the uh, COVID-19 measures. Rumour has it that an extra $900 million has been given by the government to various media entities to play COVID-19 ads, all right? This is a COVID-19 announcement. Wear a mask, scan the Tracer app, so on and so forth. Every time that there is an ad break anywhere in New Zealand, you will hear COVID ads playing. And... I was, uh, after my bail conditions uh, was signed over, I was unable to access the internet. And I asked the judge, well, what if I wanted to just watch a movie with my wife on the couch or something? And says, no, you're not allowed to do that. Not allowed to access the internet? No, no. Like, I can't even receive emails from my lawyer. I, I, and they've taken my phone with all of my contact. Anybody who I might be reaching out to, including my audience, to ask for help, they took from me for six solid weeks and yet huge, like never before have I experienced this, huge support has come from every direction. People calling me from overseas, uh, people uh, calling me to ask me, have I got uh, huge lists of names off the top of my head to uh, contact for me and so on and so forth. Massive amounts of uh, uh, donations and, and things like that to go to the lawyer, basically. Um, and it's been really good to see that. 
whilst at the same time we realise that uh, even though my bail conditions have been relaxed now when I can go on the internet and, and the only thing I can't do is uh, talk to, you know, my brother Billy, you know, or contact him in any indirect way, I can't, can't do that, or encourage people to uh, violate the uh, COVID-19 rules. Those are the conditions that I'm living under now, in addition to, of course, lockdown, which uh, everybody else in New Zealand is experiencing right now because of the Delta outbreak, which has killed, on record, one lady who was 93 with underlying health conditions who was on, allegedly, end-of-life medication. One. And we have been in full lockdown for six weeks, plus the entire country of five million people, North Island and South Island. South Island hasn't even had an outbreak case yet, and they're still in lockdown here. What is martial law? What is lockdown? What are the aspects of these? And, can, and is there any real practical difference? Martial law occurs generally for two reasons. There's some kind of crisis and you need to maintain public order, or you are a foreign power taking over and you want the local populace to be prevented from organizing any resistance against the new regime. Hmm. What are we in right now? Is it the first kind of martial law or is it the second kind of martial law? I don't think there's a crisis. I, I call it the, um, the coughing up blood test. In order to uh, uh, ascertain whether or not you are going through a real pandemic that actually is a threat to public health to the point where desperate measures might be necessary, you will have at least once, maybe two or three times, been walking down the street, going to get your groceries and seen somebody coughing up blood. All right? Like it would have been a regular occurrence so, so that everybody would have seen it. I've not seen anybody coughing up blood. In fact, the only time that I've heard of anybody coughing up blood was uh, my wife told me a story. Uh, her niece and uh, nephew went to the uh, vaccination centre because their mum uh, forced them to, uh, to get their vaccine. And while they were sitting in the waiting room, two men started coughing up blood and one woman fell down and had a seizure right in front of them. And... The girl looked at her mum and her mum said it looked like she was about to do a runner mm. and she forced them to have the vaccines then and there anyway. Do people, let's go to the to that, do the, the police officers, or call them loosely, call them police officers, I don't think they really deserve the title, but do, do they be, genuinely believe they're do, in this? Are people too afraid just to me, speak out just... and say, like, this is mad? Are they afraid to say it or do they genuinely believe it where you are? It's hard to say. Yeah. I know that there is an element of cowardice uh, within all humanity. Police uh, are, are not excluded from this. So a coward will be given an unlawful order and follow it anyway. That's potential. Now... I don't think that that's necessarily the case here, though. And I found out why it might be when I read the judgments against me uh, denying my uh, bail being absconded. We had to go all the way to the high court. That's why it took six weeks of, of having no internet uh, against my free speech and all of that kind of stuff. But anyway, the thing about this is 
When I got home and I had a transistor radio only to listen to media, at seven o'clock in the morning, one morning, I started scrolling through the FM bands. This is the music band. And it went something like this. COVID. Lockdown. Wear your mask. Get a vaccine. COVID. Lockdown. Wear your mask. Get a vaccine. Every single music station at the top of the hour was promoting and, and forcing this issue down people's throat. That's just the music stations. I was listening to the uh, the talk radio stations. Newstalk ZB, every view from every angle. We need vaccines, we need lockdowns, we need them now. I completely disagree. We need them yesterday. You're not doing it fast enough. Every view from every angle. Newstalk ZB. You go and listen to the news and all the news is about COVID. Welcome to the news report tonight. We are having an, an outbreak and we need a lockdown and we need everybody to take vaccines. Now it's time for an ad break. This is the COVID-19 announcement. Happy birthday to you. And, and now it's time for the sports report. Thankfully, the New Zealand cricket team has all been fully vaccinated, so they will be able to play against Bangladesh this Sunday. And now it's time for the traffic report. Oh, mate, the traffic queues outside the COVID testing stations are going for miles. There's no other traffic to report, though, because we're in lockdown. And now it's time for the weather report. Well, Auckland today is having some very, very fine weather as all the showers are self-isolating. And, and th this is the... This is the... The, the absolute saturated madness of, of, of this kind of thing, in addition to every single voice that is saying anything different, being censored, omitted, deleted and destroyed and defamed equally as much as the COVID is being promoted. I can see why the judges and the police would be so afraid of this virus and so concerned about me and Billy that they would genuinely do what they did because they thought that we were, in fact, a threat to society. Surely they then... hadn't heard because and only because they had never heard anything different repeated a thousand times a day across a thousand different mediums. But surely they can see with their grown-up eyes and their grown-up brains that people are not dying in the street and you're 19 months into this nonsense and it hasn't happened and it's not happening. Surely they can see that as adults, cognitive, that there has to be a cognitive dissonance there of not wanting to see it because it could not be more obvious. There is no evidence for this in, in the real world out there. Depression and anxiety is absolutely through the roof. People don't leave their homes. The only thing they're on is their phones and watching their TVs and listening to the radio, all of which is completely controlled and utterly saturated, even the social media, with all of this COVID propaganda, forcing people into a constant state of anxiety from which the only relief they are told is to have their double dose of the vaccine, for which there will only ever be 
be another booster first every six months and then every five and then every four and then every three and then every two and then every one and then you'll start to have a booster every week and then you'll have to start to have boosters for breakfast and a booster to go to lunch and a booster to, um, to uh, come home in the in the evening to be and a booster to be able to uh, go to sleep this is not going to end all right there is an end goal here and what we're living now in perpetual lockdown with constant information control directly by the state is the new normal that they want us to accept and accept forever. That is what is going on here. If people cannot see it, it is unsurprising because they have never been told about it, and anybody who would tell them about it has had their tongue cut out. And you don't cut out a man's tongue because he's wrong. You cut it out because you fear what he might say. So why do you think that they've gone, and it's, it's been such a success, because it is such a contrast, that was like that here up until maybe about nine, eight or nine months ago, and it, it's not like that here now. Um, it. Why do you think they went after New Zealand? Why do you think it was so successful in places like Australia, New Zealand, France, um, Italy, um, obviously in, in Israel? Why has it been such a success there? But somewhere like here, it's been a lot harder for them to make that stick. Though it's stuck in some ways, it hasn't to the extreme that you poor bastards are going through. And we watch and it's horrific. And I just feel like, how, how, has, it, how has it happened where you are to compare to here? Well, imagine for a moment that New Zealand doesn't like a, a beautiful, free, loving Commonwealth country like, say, uh, Great Britain or, or, or something like that. Imagine for a moment that it's more along the lines of the Cayman Islands of the South Pacific. During the Panama paper, money laundering leaks, New Zealand was mentioned by name 66,000 times in, the, in these millions of documents. There is a river of dirty money coming through New Zealand. Now, when I say we're the equivalent of the Cayman Islands of the South Pacific, that's because, like the Cayman Islands, we are a former banking colony, all right, former colony of the Bank of England, and we are run by organized crime and we are a center for money laundering, all right? You'd be surprised what you can get away with in a country like that, especially uh, if all of the world believes that you are not corrupt, all right? That's, that's the New Zealand's reputation. Uh, uh, according to Transparency International's perceived least corrupt uh, 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 countries list, the Corruption Perception Index, remember the key word here is perception, it is a voluntary list. Okay, that they send out to countries uh, asking them to voluntarily declare if corruption has been found within their country. So it works like this. New Zealand has this panel uh, for the uh, Corruption Perception Index that is filled with all of the most corrupt bureaucrats, plutocrats, and scumbaggery filth that you have ever seen in this country. You look at any of these organizations, you look at any of these individuals, and you start looking who finances them, and you start looking at all the charges that they've uh, weaseled out of over, over the years and their track records, and you're like, holy cow, these are, these are kingpins of organized crime. And so these are the people that Transparency, sends their, uh, Transparency International sends their voluntary form to. So this is how it works. Hey, bro, have you guys uh, 
got any corruption down there in New Zealand? And New Zealand goes, well, no, bro, we, uh, we don't, eh? And they just send the form back blank. And bingo, New Zealand is number one on the world's perceived least corrupt countries. You can get away with anything here. You can uh, uh, kidnap children uh, left, right, and center, cut parents out using uh, the family court. The New Zealand court has no court of record. It has no pecuniary interest record either, so that you don't know the financial interests of the judges who are ruling over your cases and whether or not uh, the former, like, for example, there's a guy named uh, Vince Sima who runs a, a website called Kiwis First uh, NZ. And you can message or look for any judge's name on his website, and it comes up with a huge list of all these corruption charges against them. Okay. The, uh, many of them are related. I think there was like a 185 or something high court judges, and uh, something like uh, 115 of them were related by blood, first cousin at least. Okay. Uh, you're talking about a really, really small country. Okay. It's like Dukes of Hazard with Boss Hogg, uh, one guy who controls all the all the uh, the media and stuff like that. One of my listeners one time asked me, so Vinny, how expensive is farmland down there in New Zealand? And I go, well, at the moment, there's a, a couple of farm blocks that are up for sale. And the only people that can afford them are a massive Chinese conglomerate, James Cameron, and a New Zealand company called uh, Fay Rich White Investments which is famous for buying New Zealand land, breaking it up, and then selling it to the Chinese, which in New Zealand is called a uh, Faye Dunaway. Um, now, the, the, the problem is that this is such an unknown truth to New Zealanders that it would become a shock as even to the people. Now, what's worse is that the reason I even started investigating this, the reason I even started filming protests and uh, uh, public meetings and interviewing activists, doing long-form interviews, that kind of thing, is because I was watching uh, too much Alex Jones, far, far, far too much. And uh, instead of continuing to watch that, I went out and I started doing it instead, and I started doing it wrong, trying to do it all Jonesy, and then eventually I found my own voice and my own way of doing things. And I think that's what we all really should do is we should find all our voices and uh, do uh, what is right with them and uh, speak the truth, even if your voice trembles. This incident has, by a factor of 10, uh, given me more trauma than any other instance in my life. The only other thing I can relate it to is my very first time uh, being arrested for selling cannabis when the police told me, tell the truth and we'll go easy on you. So I confessed and then they used my confession against me and made up evidence. And I was looking at going to jail for up to eight years for possession of 13 grams of cannabis. All right, for a first offense, no diversion, no forgiveness, no, no nothing. All right, and I was living with that possibility for up to a month. That that caused me to develop complex post-traumatic stress. Had my first panic attack in the cells right there, and I've endured uh, this condition ever since. So when they took me, I took had a panic attack uh, directly in the back of the uh, uh, paddy wagon. I started uh, sweating profusely, screaming, uh, shaking, drooling, and and. Uh, 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 flopping all over the place, you know, that kind of thing. And I had to get my uh, jacket off, but I couldn't because my my hands were cuffed behind my back. 
And so they let me scream uh, uh, and flop around for about five minutes before they opened the, uh, the door there. And then they told me to calm down before they'd take my jacket off, to which I replied, I can't calm down until you take my jacket off because I'm overheating, you know. And so they, uh, they still tried to convince me to calm down for another five minutes before they eventually uh, uh, took my jacket off while I was uh, uh, convulsing, you know. This is a, a brutal, empathic, dark void uh, that we find ourselves here in this country. People have been raised by the state at all times to believe that truth comes from authority, that authority does not come from truth. They don't want to listen. They don't want to know. They don't want to care. They don't want to help. They have but one thing on their mind, their own self-interest. And in a dark place like New Zealand, you know, it seems all, all bright and fluffy or something like that until you start scratching the surface. This place is a very uh, dark place indeed. There are very few signs of hope. And when Billy and I, the number one and number two uh, uh, public freedom fighters in this country, were snuffed out, our, our, our lights were uh, taken as we were um, taken away from our audiences and stuff like that, many of the people who called me uh, uh, told me about how depressed it made them, uh, told me about how traumatized they became after uh, watching the video. The brutality of what we have seen here is a warning to the rest of the world, as George Orwell said, if there is a lesson to be taken from this nightmare future, it is this. Don't let it happen. It's up to you. And have you heard, and I know you can't speak to Billy, but have you heard anything about what's happening with him? What happened to him afterwards? I know you haven't spoken and you can't speak to each other, but have you heard anything because he was taken away slightly before you, you, I believe. Um, is there any, anything come through of what, what's happening there? I mean, all I know of is uh, what's public knowledge is that uh, his bail conditions were relaxed before mine. Uh, so he was able to use the internet and, and travel around and stuff like that. But because he was, uh, he was up north where it's only level two and I'm in Auckland where it's still level three. Um, and he is only able to use the internet in terms of broadcasting to do his religious sermons. Now, Billy was uh, involved in uh, religion and doing his ministry where they would feed the homeless on a regular basis, and uh, that's mostly what they did. And when this lockdown, excuse me, when this lockdown and all of that kind of thing happened, um, he used his uh, uh, previous military training about uh, uh, fact-checking and, and uh, drawing the little uh, uh, lines and, and um, the little pins on the wall and, and, and the, the little uh, squiggly dots connecting all of the stuff and what have you. And he did all these presentations about uh, COVID-19 and the government and the measures and all of that kind of thing. And he amassed himself an enormous following, like uh, the kind of following that uh, uh, dwarfed mine. And he, and he accomplished it in, in only a few months uh, when in lockdown. And that's because I think uh, uh, he really had a focus. And at the time, uh, that was where the focus was. Whereas me, I've never really had uh, much of a focus. I like talking about anything and everything. You can't find out the world is a holographic fractal projection of collective consciousness experiencing itself subjectively if the only thing you're talking about is financial systems and COVID, you know. 
And, and I, I think that uh, what was really important, though, is that uh, Billy uh, kind of filled in the blanks where I, I failed and I filled in uh, the dark places with light where he failed. Right. Uh, so I, I brought the humor and I brought the, uh, the wealth of knowledge of uh, activism and, and, and all of these uh, uh, different forms of manipulation the New World Order's uh, working with. And Billy has a, a great background knowledge and all this stuff. Uh, to be sure, but he didn't learn firsthand from all the world leaders of the uh, the truth movement over a decade with 20,000 hours of recorded content uh, that I did. Uh, he doesn't have my uh, editing skills and, and all of that kind of stuff. I couldn't organize a protest or a uh, a freaking uh, a piss up in a brewery, you know, that, that kind of thing. Billy can just uh, uh, click his fingers and, and it happens. Uh, so we really complemented each other and we were uh, being really successful at, at uh, drawing attention to uh, the real issues. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there could be a, a possibility, I don't, I don't think this is necessarily the case, uh, that the reason why they uh, took us out is because we actually threatened the, uh, the country's uh, false jurisdiction. Um, so I'm so sorry I keep going on here, but uh, this is probably one of the most important things that's uh, uh, ever happened in New Zealand, principally because it's been on the back burner for nearly 200 years. In 1835, and, and I think, um, what's his name, Eddie Izzard said it best, the English conquered the world with the cunning use of flags. They went into India and planted a flag and said, all right, here we go, we declare this for India. And the Indians would say, well, well hold on a second, we, we, there's, we've been living there for thousands of years, there's hundreds of millions of us. Do you have a flag? No, well, we do, and we've got all these guns to back it up. So, we're, you know, that's, that's how jurisdiction works. Essentially, you plant a flag and you've and you got the guns to back it up. In 1835, the, the first real state of New Zealand was actually established called He Whakaputanga, all right? Or the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, uh, as we uh, say, under the Confederated Chiefs. Now, they had this uh, uh, flag that had the St. George's Cross on it because at the time, the King of England had guaranteed them sovereignty under protection of the crown they gave us our own flag and they gave us the guns to back up our jurisdiction this was the first time a local people had ever conquered their own country with the help of england okay this is historic and it was all based on natural law this is this is something that was so important and what's even more important is that jurisdiction that was established that day with the raising of that flag never went away. It's actually still there. Turns out that in uh, 1840 or, so, or something like that, they uh, came in after the king who'd uh, granted us all this uh, sovereignty and stuff like that had died. A bunch of corporate Brits came in and they established this corporation called the Queen and Right of New Zealand. This is not New Zealand and it is not right. And it's uh, listed in the SEC uh, code 8888. Uh, the Queen and Right of New Zealand. It is a corporation. On that day, up at uh, Waitangi, where this country uh, was established ostensibly, uh, they lowered a fake flag that looked very much like the Hefakaputanga flag. It had the St. George's Cross, but the stars were different. The colours on, on the in the top left-hand corner were different. So they did a symbolic flag lowering, and everybody thought that that was the real flag, and then they put it up the uh, Union Jack. So they basically stole the country and then put it into the uh, jurisdiction of a company and then back themselves up with their guns. You see, 
boom, taken. But because they lowered a false flag, legally, jurisdictionally speaking, our jurisdiction, the jurisdiction, the sovereignty of every New Zealander to live his or her life the way they choose, so long as they don't hurt anybody or damage their property, the right to not have your stuff stolen, the right to not be threatened, have your property trespassed on, the right to not be raped, the right to not be murdered, the right to not have your things taken from you. This is still here, and for the first time in 200 years, all the elders, what we call the rangatira, came together because Billy brought them together. He did not sleep. He did not tire. He did not relent. There were so many meetings, talking to so many people over such a long time that it happened for 200 years and nobody had ever been able to establish a real movement out of it until Billy came along and made it happen. That's leadership, sacrifice, courage. I saw what he went through. I saw what it was doing to his family. But he thought that this country and reestablishing our freedom, our sovereignty, was more important than his own comfort, than his own safety. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how depressed you have been when you have seen the news and all of the things going on. When you hear that, when you see that, hope is kindled. And I think that's why they had to shut us down. Because you have to keep the fire alive in people, otherwise they all just commit suicide and, and get fully depressed. You have to give them some form of hope. But just like a fire, if it is not contained, if it is let to run rampant and ablaze across the countryside, it can be very dangerous. So they contained us. So from here, what happens from here? Because, as you say, there was meetings going on that have never happened for hundreds of years. That hasn't gone away. That's not unhappened. What happens from here? It's the re-establishment. Now, because uh, at the moment, of course, because of our bail conditions, we can't uh, talk to each other and, and Billy can't even broadcast about the, the kind of thing. So they basically cut the head off of the movement, as we've seen uh, many, many times uh, throughout history before. So at the moment, we just basically have to focus on our court case and, and uh, uh, reasserting the fact that uh, we still have the, uh, the Bill of Rights in this country, that our protest action was a lawful activity, that the COVID-19 uh, uh, Act, Section 13, Subsection 2 reads, quote, does not override the Bill of Rights Act 1990. It's there in the legislation. It is an open and shut case. So naturally, it took them over six weeks to even revise our bail conditions, and it could take years before we get a judgment. Now, if we are found not guilty, it means that every New Zealander has the right to protest under these lockdown conditions. That is their right. 
And that means that all the unlawful arrests that have been happening will have to have all their charges thrown out. So that would look really bad for the government. If we are found guilty, it means New Zealanders don't have any rights if the government decides that they want a lockdown. And that will scare the heck out of the people and make them angry at the same time. Mm. And the government doesn't want that either. It doesn't matter if we win this case or lose this case. The fact that we are fighting it means that we have already won. The police themselves said in their opposition to uh, the, the relinquishing of my bail conditions, him having ac access to the internet, quote, would not curb his ability to spread anti-lockdown sentiment, end quote. All right. These people deliberately censored my free speech. They took my livelihood away from me and uh, they've made me go through more trauma than ever. But it has yielded a heck of a lot of interesting jokes. For example, why did Vinnie Eastwood cross the road? I don't know. Why did Vinnie Eastwood cross the road? Because the judge varied his bail conditions. <laughs> right when i was in the when i was in the cells and, and in the back of the paddy wagon and stuff like that in between panic attacks i think i had six in total um i had to sing you know so i was singing mm. john denver country roads i was singing uh, split in six months in a linky boat woolly bully by sam the sham and the pharaohs and all my bands uh, uh song and set that we've done and um one of the cops, uh, I think when I was uh, coming out to uh, talk to a lawyer on the intercom, uh, one of the cops says, hey, was, was that you singing? And I go, yeah, yeah. And he goes, oh, you're actually pretty good. And there's was, was beautiful acoustics in the cells, man. It felt like I had a choir behind me. Um, and uh, one of the songs I sang was uh, uh, written by my bass player. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I can uh, uh, play it for you here, but it goes something like... Uh, Stay safe, stay safe, be kind, be kind, stay home, stay home, save lives, wear your mask when you're in the car by yourself, with the windows up, yeah, don't forget to scan the app and give your location to the government. You know, and, and then it just repeats. Um, and I was singing that, and one of the one of these uh, uh, big Islander cops with like no neck and a mask covering like his entire face, like comes up and he just stares at me with those eyes through the, through the glass of the cell, and he just starts shaking his head at me and do approval, bro. You know, and I, and I was um, I was in the cells for like nearly uh, twenty eight hours, and. Uh, after I got out and uh, saw my wife for the first time, I felt like I was a prisoner in a Russian gulag. See my wife and I go, baby, you haven't aged a day. You're still as beautiful and supple as the day the state took my freedom. <laughs> this is the absurdity. Did them not understand 
the absurdity of it, these police officers were doing that. Do they not get it? Do they not understand that it's coming for them? I'm the only uh, person in this country who has uh, interviewed uh, not one, not two, but three uh, former police officers uh, in a long-form interview. And they are uh, Police Prosecuting Sergeant Grace Hayden, uh, Constable Buck Rains, and uh, Detective Natasia Suarez. Now, they each taught me a different thing about the police. Buck Rains probably taught me the most because uh, we uh, went into explicit detail about the training that we're talking here. We're talking 30 minutes of baton training, 30 minutes of taser training, all right? Very, very little actual training with the practical tools of the job if they ever actually got into a, 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 a bad altercation. Uh, and many, many hours, like hundreds of hours, marching training, mm. okay? Now, I went over this uh, uh, with Buck, and he said the uh, police exam goes like this, and there's a lot of theory and a lot of the things that you've got to memorize and, and so on and so forth from the books. You do the thing, and if you pass, you become a police officer. If you fail, you get to sit the test again, and they give you a little bit of help. If you fail that again, they give you the answers to memorize. If you fail that again, they make you a traffic cop. That's what he actually said. Yep. And um, which reminds me of a joke. Guy's driving along the road and he hears this. It's like, oh, baby, I'm being pulled over. And um, cop car pulls in behind him and out of the car steps a six-foot-tall mosquito wearing a stab-proof vest. Mosquito comes up to his car and leans in and says, You have any idea how fast you go, mate? And he goes, well, No, not really. Well, anyway, we're just taking random blood samples tonight. Oi! <laughs> it friggin' itches. Look, mate, I'm just doing my job, okay? I've got larvae to feed. Mosquito cops, weeknights at seven. And. <laughs> <laughs> It's just there combined the two most annoying things in the world. <laughs> mosquitoes and traffic cops. <laughs> but anyway, that's what Buck Rains taught me about, about the police is that they're not necessarily the brightest. He also taught me about how they um, the people that they came in to educate them about drug use spent 45 minutes in total about all drugs. That's 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 how long they actually spent re researching into it. And the person they had to explain this to them was a guy who'd written one book on it decades ago that was full of inaccuracies, who spent 38 out of the 45 minutes talking about a trip he took one time to Antarctica. <laughs> These kids are fresh. They're fresh out of school. They got no life experience, he said. He said they never had a job. He said they never done an OE. And the reason why he saw things differently to them is because unlike them, he had taken substances. He had traveled overseas. He had worked. He had experienced life. Most police haven't. This is all they know. And when they come in, they give them a number. They're not, they're not referred to by their name anymore. And so it uh, places a disassociation with them to themselves.
and now they are no longer them, they're now a number, and they're now a number in the police. And then they force them away from their job, their, uh, their family and their circles of friends by transporting them down the country to places like Rotorua, which is the, uh, like the family violence capital of New Zealand. And they force these young cops who've never really had any real life experience, uh, and they give them no training in psychology or, or, or um, uh, how to uh, bring situations down or anything like that. And they send them into these most brutal situations where people have been their wives, where people are screaming, and you see the most horrible elements of humanity firsthand, and it breaks them. And in order to be able to keep doing their job, because they've just done all this training and they, and, uh, they pay them uh, more every year that they're in, so that keeps them in. All right. And because the trauma that they're experiencing is so constant and so regular, they have to drink. Some of them experience so much trauma that uh, they can't sleep at night unless they go blackout drunk. Mm. Because unless they're blackout drunk, they dream. They see the ghosts. I spoke to some ex-New Zealand military Maori guys uh, about this. And uh, one of them had his uh, friend who he's known since he was uh, five years old, lived across the, uh, the street from him, die, die in his arms because his commanding officer had been drinking with the Americans the night before. And when they came under fire from insurgents, he didn't give his orders correctly and his mate got shot. You see, he punched his, punched his uh, officer out and he got busted down from captain to sergeant. And then he, uh, then he got out of the military and now he works as a cook. Didn't even have his car to uh, uh, get home. I drove him home. And these guys keep giving me beers after beers after beers and stuff like that. And I say to them, uh, how many times have you told people this story? And they go, I've I maybe told somebody once my entire life. I got it out of these guys in 35 minutes. I'm a really, really good interviewer. Not because I ask the right questions, but because I don't care what the answers are. All right. And that doesn't mean that I'm not listening. And that doesn't mean I'm not empathic. It means that whatever the answer is, I'm willing to accept it as being true, uh, coming from this person. I'm willing to feel what they felt, all right? The reason why I do that is because it, it requires suffering to acquire enlightenment. From enlightenment comes great sorrow. And before enlightenment, it is said that you must chop wood and carry water. And after enlightenment, you must chop wood and carry water. Nothing actually changes just because you experienced something traumatic. The world still is what it is, and it isn't what it isn't. The question is, what are you doing now? What are you doing about it? And this was a, a huge amount of suffering that, that I've been through, and I know what I'm fighting for. I know what my end goal is because my fear has governed my actions for so long that I don't know any other task but trying to prevent my own enslavement and subsequent extermination by ruthless criminal sociopathic scumbaggery. That's the point of my life. Okay. And now that I have a daughter, I understand that she faces a very similar threat. And I, therefore, even though this is probably the most traumatic event in my life, 10 times more trauma than I've ever been through, I know that if I have to go through a hundred times as much, a thousand, 10,000 times as much suffering as I've just been through to make 
a small chance of that brighter future for my baby possible, I don't want to do it, but I will do it if I have to, if it is required of me. And that's why we all do this. We've both got small children. Um, and that's why we do this. When uh, do you, you spoke about the suffering there. Do you think these 5 million people in New Zealand are going to, there's a breaking point in the suffering when they will just switch and it will either go I think to violence the cause of- or, they, or they think that there'll be a point where they do, it'll be too much for them. The benefits of going along with this madness will not outweigh the... Um, I, I completely disagree. They're going to be given the carrot and the stick. No jam, no job. Hey, you want to be able to travel, don't you? The only way we're going to be able to resist, uh, lift the bubble is if you get everybody vaccinated. So it's those unvaccinated people that are meaning that you can't travel. It's those unvaccinated people that mean that you can't have a job. It's those unvaccinated people that are reason why we're having lockdowns. It's all the unvaccinated people's fault. You should report them. You should turn them in. You should try and convince them otherwise. You should hound them. You should bribe them. You should give them consequences. What Am I just making this up? No, these are quotes from the freaking husband of the prime minister off of Twitter. We have All the right? same here. We have the same in this country as well. It's not so, as overt, but it's the same. Now... You see articles in the media all the time about anti-vaxxers. Anti-vaxxers think this. Anti-vaxxers should do this instead. You know, anti-vaxxers are just that. You know, blah, blah, blah. And I come up with a thought exercise. Read the article again. But replace every word mentioned anti-vaxxer with the words the Jews. Read the article again. The Jews should do this. The Jews are just that. The Jews are that. You see? Do you see now what we're going through? I saw, I saw a meme on, on, on the thing, and this is something that I mentioned on the, uh, the radio interview um, with our Kathy Newman of New Zealand. Um, <laughs> that I saw a, uh, a meme my, my wife showed me of a, uh, a Jewish guy's testimony and saying that, uh, you know, the government just kept passing law after law after law, and we were just like, well, every law is just another law, just another law. What, what, is, what, what difference does it make? But when we had to start wearing the Star of David's on us, then we got really worried. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you are wearing a mask. You are uh, scanning your tracer apps. You're going to get your vaccine passports, okay? You've got your Star of David. You've got your papers, please, and you've got the state controlling your body. And it was interesting to note that there's a statistical anomaly in in, uh, Israel, which is very, very highly vaccinated, that a lot of the very, very old and uh, very orthodox rabbis and stuff like that aren't uh, getting the vaccine and are refusing to. And when somebody told me that, I was just going, why would... Very, very old Jewish people not want the state forcing some kind of medication into their bodies. I, I just, I'm drawing a blank in history here. You know, just this thing is absolutely resonant. And, and uh, when we're talking about everybody makes this uh, Russia reference or the, or the uh, uh, Germany reference or, or uh, uh, the uh, Longshanks in, in, in Britain reference, these 
things happen all the time throughout history. They have the exact same tactic every single time. They take your weapons. They take your kids. They take your education. They take your wealth. And then they've got you. Okay, life, liberty, private property. That was the reason why the United States Revolution was so revolutionary in and of itself, because it meant that somebody could actually be free, have their own life in their own hands, not be a piece of property of somebody else, and they could own stuff. But of course, not if you were black at the time. <laughs> yep. And then you're not the only person saying this. I watched the live last night and, and the guy who 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 had some sort of meltdown when you even mentioned this, which was absurd to me. You're not the only person saying this. Uh, uh, survivors of, of these prison camps, as I know of two or three that I've seen, have actually come out and said there's similarities. They've spoke out against it as well. So how comes people can't see that this is how it starts? And at the very, very least, Billy, there is a correlation of a similarity. At the very, very tiny mid least, there is a correlation of an obvious similarity, if not the extremities of it or extremeness of it. If I, may, a... if I may, if I may, can, can anybody see the irony of Holocaust survivors being on the side of the people the media are telling you are the extreme right? Yeah. Okay. And you only become the extreme left of something if you stand on the other side of that right. If you yeah. swap your side, then you you become they become the other extreme of you. So all the left has done is swap sides over to the right. It's all just switched and inverted. It's quite clear that the woke madness has gone absolutely batshit Joker from Batman insane. Quite clear, and but it's switched. Well, we're, we're entering into a, a period of uh, mass psychosis. And again, yep. this has happened throughout history. Uh, witch burnings, uh, I think in, in, in one town in Finland, I believe it was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, they didn't even have hardly any women left in some of the towns because of the mass hysteria that was flowing through and people accusing everybody and stuff like that. That's coming. Your neighbours, you're going to have to hide who you are and what you think from your neighbors. You're gonna to have to hide people in your basements, in your walls and, and, and things like that. This is the, the kind of times uh, that are now uh, becoming revisited. And, and if, let me be clear, freedom is not the norm in history. It's, it's, it's a very, very rare exception. Mm when people have their rights and have those uh, rights upheld. And the reason why it's a rare exception is because there's a cycle and it goes like this. Good men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Hard times create good men. Okay, we get through the cycle now. And I am one of the weak men, all right? I'm not big and strong. I come apart uh, like cotton candy with, with all of these uh, trauma and, and, and stresses apart on me, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not an oak. I'm more of a wisteria, you know, the exterior of a wist. Um, and 
people were saying like, how come you have to represent it, everything? You're like, but isn't there anybody better? And you go like, sadly, no. Like, I, I, I really wish there was somebody more talented, more handsome, more uh, eloquent with their vocabulary, uh, less lazy, uh, has a better diet, somebody who was raised properly, somebody who uh, isn't full of, of, of self-doubt and fear, somebody who doesn't have complex post-traumatic stress in order to do the job that needs to be done so that the people who need to be heard get the platform they need, all right? Because when we keep all this information inside, it starts driving us insane. There isn't anybody better. If there was, they would have shown themselves. I'm the best you got. And isn't that a shame, all right? People don't have any idea what the hell is going on because the education split. I remember when I was in university, we talked about the digital divide, about how the people without computers and the countries with computers are getting further and further away from each other in terms of the development of other technologies and indeed the development of their society. And that's indeed uh, what is happening here. You and I and all the people that are, that are of our ilk are developing in a completely different direction to the rest of society. And society doesn't like like it and they are going to come and get us you're absolutely right in of course you are in that sense and they're they're happily walking into these technocracies uh, do you do you think it's because they genuinely don't know they don't have the context where they're going they don't understand it i know that me people like us we look into these for years and years uh, we understand what the long-term goal is to a certain extent of this people don't have a clue where this is heading do they in the large sense is do you think they're starting to get an idea of it or they just, even if they, they do, they just want to bury their head in the sand anyway. It's too absurd. It's too weird. Even to the point where they've got these nanotechnologies streaming around their bodies already, even to the extent they can't leave their house when they don't, they want to, they can't do anything they want to. They are still ready to go. These conspiracy theorists, they can't be right. How can do you know what the I mean? Words of Yuri Bezmenov, former KGB agent and defected to the United States, in his interview with G. Edward Griffin on the Reality Zone in the early 1980s. When the process of demoralization is complete, you will be able to come up to one of these people with the best argument in the world and absolutely conclusively prove that black is black and white is white, and they will not be able to see it. Thus, the process of demoralization is complete and irreversible. These people will not and cannot wake up. We are going to see a lot of death, just as uh, no pandemic throughout history has ever killed uh, more than 70% of the population, because even viruses know not to kill off their own food supply. Only psychopathic human beings with no conscience or regard to their actions do that, all right? These are parasites, and they need energy, our energy. That's why they're putting out all this fear in the, through the media, because they know, and they can feel it, and they can tamp into it, and they can feed off of it. Whether or not we're talking about a world that is completely three-dimensional and being used with uh, conventional psychological means and things of that nature, or whether we're talking about an ancient war that all the religions have talked about between the darkness and the light, 
And for the first time in history, we are at a precipice where the war is about to end, where either the world and its light will shine out and shine out throughout the universe for all eternity, or whether it will become enveloped in a darkness and a shadow forevermore. Do you think, just to wrap this up, that these psychopaths, they yearn to be to die and they want to take everyone else down with them. They don't want to be alive. They hate everything. They're in so much fear, so much pain. They want to die and they want you dead too. It's the exact opposite. They want to live and they want me dead because if I'm dead, they can live for longer because I've, I'm consuming less resources because I'm not one of the goy, the cattle, the dead, the unbegun. These are the occult terms that are being used and being used regularly, I hear, uh, by these people uh, in New Zealand and around the world, our, our varying elites who uh, belong to all of these uh, much bigger circles and clubs. Many of them uh, themselves, victims, uh, Victims of mind control, victims of mind wiping, victims of ritualistic abuse, victims of uh, rape and uh, uh, torture and uh, that kind of thing. I interviewed uh, Rachel Vaughan from Australia. She's uh, a uh, whistleblower about uh, the uh, pedophile cults uh, that are operating there out of uh, Freemasonic temples and things of that nature. Underground tunnels that were connecting underground temples beneath Masonic lodges in the major cities where she was uh, being smuggled along with other children. She said that when they tortured and raped and ritualistically sacrificed uh, children in those temples, these acolytes were able to summon things out of the darkness. And depending on the temple, if you were in the temple of Osiris, a Osiris-shaped uh, shadow would emerge out of, out of the darkness and it would start uh, floating around and looking at people and things like that. And she said, and this is when she was a very young girl uh, uh, experiencing this happening, that these people who were doing these horrible things, for the first time she saw that they were afraid. Not, not just afraid, but petrified absolutely terrified they brought this thing into our realm so they could do its bidding not because of their own desire but because of the fear of what it would do to them if they disappointed it imagine all right imagine if you knew that demons and the dark gods and hell was not a theory, but a reality. And you knew that unless you did terrible, horrible things, they'd make it hard to sleep at night, they'd make it even difficult to be alive. You would go there, you would experience that, and you would do anything to prevent that from happening because you know this is real and you're up to your neck in it. And there was no salvation for you, no retribution, no redemption. You are lucky to be alive and surrounded by all this wealth. Because at least you're not disappointing your masters and suffering their wrath. 
this is the dark kind of uh, uh, thoughts and, uh, that I'm uh, going through right now as I'm starting to believe that many of the fantasy makers of our times, the, uh, the authors of uh, Lord of the Rings, the makers of Blade Runner and so on and so forth, that all of these coincidences and all of these things uh, that we're seeing now are not by accident, uh, but are in fact a form of synchronicity, a, a kind of meaningful coincidence that although we don't know the full strength of the signal, we don't understand the full message that we're receiving through these films and media, it's becoming clearer to me by the day that our fantasies are shaping our reality and our reality is warping our fantasies. And I think that what's happening right now is the reason for so much confusion, so much depression, so much anxiety in society is that the media and the government have joined forces to switch the rails, as it were, to make reality so far off track that anybody who is sane will begin to question their own sanity because everybody else appears so crazy as they accept the program and not knowing why they still feel this anxiety, not knowing why they still feel this fear. I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything that I'm told. I'm believing everything the government's saying. Well, why am I still feeling this way? It's because your body, your mind, your soul wants to be real. It wants to manifest things in the real world. It wants to have real conversations. It wants to make things. It wants to create. And every moment that you are not making things that don't exist yet, you will feel anxiety. You will feel depressed. You are feeling that for a reason because you are not fulfilling your potential. And you will become someone who's programmed to fear those that do. Be resentful of those who do. So the basic, basic principle of it is this. You're a fifth dimensional creative being. Now, first dimension is a dot. Second dimension is a line. Third dimension is a box. The fourth dimension is the box moving through time. The fifth dimension is the box, but it's beyond time. It's beyond space. And that's where all of your thoughts are right now, Richard. Everything you've ever thought of building but never constructed, everything you've ever thought about saying but never said, that's all trapped in the fifth dimension. It doesn't really exist. Every bit of inspiration that we've got is up there. And our job as a fifth dimensional creative being is to spend our fourth dimensional time willing those fifth dimensional thoughts into the three dimensional universe. Once they're there, they can be seen by the other people in the three dimensional universe. They can be heard, they can be tasted, they can be touched, they can be smelled, they can be felt. Okay. And only then can your work, whatever it is, inspire somebody else, trigger their own fifth dimensional thoughts. They'll connect the dots, draw the lines themselves, and they then will be inspired. Every musician 
has been inspired by others before they picked up an instrument. Every filmmaker has been inspired by movies they've seen before they picked up a camera. And that means that if we are not at all times, basically, in some way, shape or form, walk, working towards creating our own unique expressions, existence in this three-dimensional universe, we are potentially robbing anybody who might see it of their own inspiration, of their own meaning and purpose in life. Thus is the obligation and the struggle. And that's why people get so depressed, so full of anxiety, and so resentful of anybody who does create things when they are not. So to end this with what you're going through now, is there any way you can see this as part of your tapestry of your own creative expression in the world and what you're going to do here? Um, is there any way that you can kind of hold on to that and, and help that help yourself through with the model that you've just explained to me? Well, you know, they say every joke has a victim. So I think since getting out of prison, I'm actually funnier. Um, and so <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of comedy there and, and, and I do a bit of music and I do a bit of filmmaking and I do a bit of speech writing and, and I do a bit of uh, voice acting and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, we did a Rebellion Gaia video game and I did 32 voices, including uh, eight of the, uh, the monster creatures and all of the bad guys and everything like that, you know. Rhythm. How do you get them to burn for so long? Practice. Lots and lots of practice. <laughs> you know, there's, there's all sorts of talents and, and, and things that I can do. And uh, the thing is, I'm free now. All right. And, and I felt like I was free for a long time because I was, I was driving along the road one day and, my, and uh, so poor that my uh, radio is broken. And I couldn't afford to get it fixed. So it was a long drive and I had to think while I was there. So I had to come up with an important thought. OK, what's an important thought? Hmm. What do I want to accomplish after I'm dead? Not what do I want to accomplish in life, but what do I want to accomplish after I'm already dead? Like somebody comes up at my funeral and whatnot. And I was like, hmm. Somebody through some indirect means of their activism and their life's work and something like that will come up at my funeral and say something along the lines of, I was really depressed at one point and thought about giving up what I was doing. But then there was this guy, Vinnie Eastwood, and he taught me about the lighter side of genocide, made me laugh. And I thought, you know what, I'll just keep on going. And as a result of that, they uh, uh, saved uh, uh, indirectly or, or directly uh, millions of lives or something. They come up to my funeral, say that, you know. The next day, uh, Kevin Galilee, I've had on my show a number of times, uh, written 10 books about the United Nations covert depopulation agenda, and it goes on hunger strikes outside the Vatican and stuff like that, said almost word for word, my thought, unsolicited. I hadn't told anybody this uh, on, on one of my Facebook posts. And uh, so I went, damn it, I've already accomplished everything in, <laughs> after death that I wanted to accomplish in life. What do I do now? <laughs> so, so the answer is, I don't really know. I had this conversation with Cliff High one time, 
and I said that humanity is like a spring. When you, when you hold that spring down, the spring compresses and you have to actually exert a lot of energy just to keep that spring down. Mm. And that's what humanity's spirit is like. And eventually they're gonna, the new world order is going to weaken and we're just going to pop back up. And Cliff said to me, no, Vinny, use an organic example. Humanity is like a water spring. What happens when you try to force water that is bursting through to the surface down? It starts burrowing sideways through rock and mud and sand and bursts through to the surface in places that you could not predict. That is what humanity's spirit is like. What's next? I'm going to go to court and try and try and get off these charges and uh, continue doing what I've always been doing, what I know to be the right thing, and knowing that it needs no further justification than that. And where can people support you, Vinny? Where can people find your work and support you? Okay. Um, the vinnyeastwoodshow.com that's Vinny with a Y because it's the most important question and Eastwood like go ahead make my news and go ahead ladies and gentlemen set up an automatic payment and whatnot because of course if I get taken offline and can't ask for donations I'll be screwed thank you very much ladies gentlemen slaves Vinny Eastwood is bad news it's like the news, but worse. It's the lighter side of genocide. Just because we're being exterminated doesn't mean we can't make it fun. Otherwise, what's the point of being killed? Bad news. We're the only thing worse than living in a high-tech global police state run by child trafficking Satanists. Is Vinny's jokes. Cheers, guys. Thank you, Vinny. Cheers for your time. God bless you, mate. But I'm unapologetically fly, no wonder why, that's just my attitude Yeah, okay, hey, that's just my, uh, 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 come on Yeah, yeah, uh.